Will the British ever get over World War One? How many freaking <laughs> British songs do I need to hear about World War One? Oh I get it. It sucked. But like there was like a lot of other stuff that happened since World War One that was equally, if not more, traumatic. How about maybe World War Two? <laughs> Hey, and welcome everyone to another episode of 1001 Album Complaints. It's the show where lifelong musicians and old friends randomly select an album from Robert Dimery's 1001 Albums You Must Hear Before You Die. We analyze it, we laugh a whole lot, and give you our jackass opinions on the album. So this week, we've all been listening to the Zombies album, Odyssey and Oracle. So if you've never heard this album, I encourage you to hit pause on the podcast Go out to Apple Music, go out to Spotify, whatever music streaming service you have. Find the album Odyssey and Oracle uh, by the Zombies. Give it a listen and then jump back in so you can be right there with us as we pick this album apart. So, uh, basically, we all listen to this. We're going to give you guys some hot takes, some deeper dives into some selected tracks, and ultimately vote on whether you really need to listen to this album or if you can leave it in the Borders Books and Music bargain bin trash heap of history. At the end, we'll, uh, we'll announce next week's album, which you should then, of course, go and listen to so you can be nice and informed. And I think I get a uh, an extra star for mentioning borders, yeah, books, and music. Yeah, very timely reference there. <laughs> All right. those borders, right. right? Very topical. Yes. Just occurred to me that we, if you follow our instructions and listen to the record, and then later we tell you if you needed to listen to it or not. <laughs> yeah, that's a little confusing. But we're professionals, so sure. You really want to make sure that uh, you're on board with all this. <laughs> you can check the notes. We'll tell you what songs to listen to that we're going to analyze. There you go. Right. We're going to have a we're going to have a Spotify playlist as well to help guide you through the experience. So this week we're listening to The Zombies, which is a band from the 1960s. Uh are you guys very familiar with them? I I knew of one or two hits, but very little um had I actually heard by them. Uh they were they formed in uh, Hertfordshire, England in 1960. It was a group of school kids all got together. Um, Colin Bloomstone, Rod Argent, Paul Atkinson, Chris White, and Hugh Grundy. They, uh, they were the original members of the band. They started playing music and, uh, you know, they, they, they played out a bit in the early sixties, but they really kind of hit their stride in, in 1965 when they released their first album, which was called Begin Here, which I think is just a brilliant, clever, uh, brilliant, brilliant name. Classic uh, British wit there. <laughs> Two years later, they uh, they follow up with the album we're listening to today, which is Odyssey and Oracle. Now, the interesting thing about the zombies, and this is something, Phil, you had mentioned in a previous podcast about wanting to just release singles as you, yeah. as you, you wrote them and released them. The zombies were one of those bands that, that kind of did that. Over the course of, I think, three or four years, they released 13 singles that were not on albums between 1964 and 69. So, sorry, that's five years. But they really only had two albums, uh, which was The Begin Here and The Odyssey and Oracle. So, Odyssey and Oracle is their, is their second album. 
It's 12 songs across 35 minutes, which tells you right off the bat they're, they're going to be nice and sweet, uh, kind of short, uh, which I personally love for a pop album. Uh, fun little tidbit, too. If you go look for Odyssey and Oracle, you'll notice you're going to be spelling Odyssey wrong. That's because the, uh, the band hired one of their friends to create the album cover, and the dude spelled Odyssey wrong. <laughs> so if you're, you're not you crazy. think that ever gets brought up? Right. <laughs> At dinner. Well, they, they, they said that the band tried to play it off, that it was deliberate until somebody called him out. Like, you know, we, we know Bob did it and he screwed it up. They're like, all right, yeah, we screwed it up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> now, interestingly enough as well, 1967 and 68, uh, a very big year in British music. Sgt. Pepper's was released at the end of 67, I believe. Uh, right around these times, were enter- uh, right around the time the zombies were entering the studio. So I think there might have been either a, a, a month overlap or a month gap between when the Beatles were exiting Abbey Road Studios for Sgt. Pepper and the zombies were coming in to, uh, to put this album so together. So you're telling me that it was released before they went into the studio? No, so it was... Wait, what was the question? I, so, I, so, well, hold on. I, I heard, the way I heard the zombies guys, the surviving members of the zombies guys talk about it is they were basically walking in as the Beatles were walking out. Like they found their instruments on the floor and stuff. Uh, according to Wikipedia, uh, I think there was a gap in between when... Yeah, they recorded June through November of 67, and Sgt. Pepper, uh, they finished recording potentially in May? But it could have been like so, at the end of May. Yeah. Right, right. So, but yeah, but, but Rob, to your point, they, they had mentioned that, that they did, uh, John Lennon had just left his Mellotron, which you will see makes uh, quite a prominent appearance on this album. You'll also notice probably as we get into it, you might hear some similarities to some of the, the, the Beatles. Obviously, at the time, everyone was, was probably going for that sound. Uh, one of the lead engineers on the Sgt. Pepper album also is a lead engineer on this Zombies album. Going back to something else I've, I've heard Phil talk about before, which is... There's a lot uh, of things Phil's talked about before. Yeah, in the, in the 35 years that I've known Phil, <laughs> that sometimes bands will go in, record an album, and then break up before it's released. This is exactly what happened with... It's, al- uh, it's almost like something about the album creation process is stressful. <laughs> drive people insane. Uh, yeah, so, so that was one of those funny things where uh, Time of the Season, which we'll hit on in, in just a minute, uh, was their big hit. And when it went you know, super successful, the band had already been broken up for something like six months. Uh, and when it hit big in the U.S. charts, they were uh, 13, months, uh, 13 months out, had, had broken up. So <laughs> a fun little, fun little story on why you should try to stay together at least for six months to see if you got any sleeper hits on your next album. <laughs> I was going to say more that it's important that you really retain the name, you know. Naming rights are everything. You want to get that locked in pretty quick. <laughs> it's like you cued me up for this, like, perfectly. So I had teased beforehand talking about ZZ Top and, like, oh, we're going to talk about ZZ Top this week. Um, it's one of my favorite rock and roll stories of all time. All right. So the Zombies release Odyssey and Oracle. They break up. It's the 60s. There's no internet. People don't know what these guys look like. They don't know who they are. And so some enterprising 
record company in America based out of Michigan. Super shady company just decides that they're going to put together a band and call themselves the Zombies and have them start touring in America playing zombie songs as the Zombies. And they did it twice. They had the Michigan Zombies and they had the Texas Zombies. And apparently they had done this a couple of times before. Like bands talk about how they were, I'm trying to remember what the name of it. They were like touring as this other band that had like a female lead vocalist. And they, but there were like three dudes and it was like a five piece with a female lead vocalist, but it was like three dudes touring and they just, they would tell stories about like, oh yeah, no, our keyboard player got arrested uh, earlier on in the tour and that's why they're not with us. And so anyway, the Texas Zombies was basically like a four piece, um, like blues band that was playing zombie songs but they would basically just play like one or two zombie songs and just do like blues versions of them and then play a bunch of blues standards and stuff like that and tour all over the world and when they would all over the the country and they would come into a town and and were like universally hated like everybody was so disappointed to see them because they're like you guys suck i I thought (laughs) like the zombies are terrible (laughs) so eventually it gets around that like some people who actually know guys from the zombies are like confronting them at shows and being that's like, not what the them. hell is going on. <laughs> and they're like trying to respond in like fake British accents and like, dude, you're from Texas. What is wrong with you? And apparently the drummer and the bass player from the Texas zombies were Frank Beard and Dusty Hill, who later went oh on to form God. ZZ Top. That's like how they hooked up musically is through the fake zombies that they were touring with. That's, that is the greatest great rock and roll story well, and of all time. So Dusty Hill has been like asked about this a couple of times, and apparently the only response he will give was, it was the 60s, man. <laughs> like, <laughs> that covers like, a lot of sins. Like, it like, was the 60s, I'll tell you. 60s, man. Their personas, their music, their stage. Pre- That's it was awesome. fair game. It's a great story. I mean, I'm not in love with the stealing part, but the franchising the band throughout the country. Yeah, part. Now, man. that's smart. I always thought the chop should have done that. Should have been setting up, uh, setting up camps in <laughs> different uh, regions. The franchise pyramid is scheme. Yeah, the franchising would be really clutch. Well, you, you need a, a hit song for that to work. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so dare you. You can go to lunch. <laughs> oh, there were plenty. There are plenty. Tell that to Guar. We should review a chop album at some point. I think that's one that we'll do an ad. Uh-huh. So, <laughs> the, yeah, one of the, yeah, so you mentioned so time of the season was only a hit in the US that's that's probably why they got that and since the zombies mm-hmm. had broken up didn't want to tour over here but I've heard them mention in interviews I don't know if they're being overly humble or not but it was never it never really charted or cracked the top 20 in the UK even though it's very well known there it never actually made them a hit well, it gave them, never right. gave them a hit in UK they started right. touring in the U.S. because they learned that other people were making money touring on their name in the U.S. So they sort of got back together and played U.S. shows because they were like, wait a second, like we're leaving money on the table. And people are also trashing our good name by putting on terrible right. shows and being like a right. blues rock band and saying they're the zombies. <laughs> Which if you could pick a genre so different from like what the zombies put forth in this album, I could not think of a much more different genre than like blues rock. Other than like than oh, Texas blues. Yeah, like Texas. Yeah, this album is, right. This album is so white. It's so British. Yeah, really. <laughs> so British. Yeah. Yes. 
So speaking of time of the season, we mentioned that is the mega hit from this album. Let's give that a quick listen. It's the time of the season When love runs high In this time, give it to me easy And let me try with pleasured hands To take you in the sun To promise lands To show you everyone So there you go. I'm sure everyone has heard that song. It's been everywhere. It's been on commercials and movies. And this, it's been hit like 135 million times on Spotify or something. So that was, that was the big hit. Um, and looking at this album, uh, I noticed that it was classified as Baroque pop. Mm, you and, know what else was classified as Baroque pop? Uh, yeah. It was the Bee Gees. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> so the Albinator 5000, uh, which randomly selects our albums, did a surprisingly good job this week mm. because there's there's a tie back to the Bee Gees that's coming up a, a little later on. Oh, really? Well. I gotta say, I gotta say, that's, I was I was let down that you you couldn't attend that one because I feel like you there were some convictions that were gonna be tested. <laughs> I listened to it and I will it it makes me attest to the effectiveness and importance of this podcast because having listened to that episode i'm not going to go listen to trafalgar by the Bee Gees. i got all i needed from what you guys had laid down so thank you for the public service yeah. we saved of, you like negative uh, of, 35 minutes it's great right i i actually think i enjoyed listening to you know however long you guys were talking about it over listening to the actual album so i'm sure that's true <laughs> so o- overall, let's get let's get a, a quick uh, quick takes on on the album as a whole. Uh, Phil, yeah, I mean as a whole, I sort of instantly loved the record, especially like the first first side. Um, I just thought you know it's just it 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 just felt like straight British psychedelia. Uh, it had like everything from like the beach boys to the Beatles to the monkeys and like Neil Diamond even like, it just felt like there were so many things that it touched on. It did slump off a little towards the end. I can't help but wonder if like time of the season, well, they didn't know it was going to be a hit, I guess. So I don't know. It seems like it, it does get a little weird and slumpy at the end, but in general, I mean, I just thought the harmony and the chord changes were fantastic. I guess it's my turn. This is Rob. Yeah. Yeah, I'll jump in and say, yeah, I liked it from the jump. I knew some of these songs a little bit. I feel like the Zombies is that band that when you hear a Wes Anderson movie soundtrack and you're like, who's that band? And, you know, because this sounds cool in the 60s. The answer is invariably the Zombies or the Kinks or something. So, you know, I definitely knew some of the tunes a little bit. I somewhat disagree with Phil and that I think it's a pretty consistent record. I, th- I think it's one of the more consistent 60s records I've heard, although I will say it really epitomizes the 1960s. You could spin me around 75 times and hit me with a, a baseball bat and play a millisecond of a note from this and I'd still be able to tell you what decade it was recorded in. Sure. I don't think that's a bad thing. I think they, I, in my opinion, this is an example of the good side of the sort of post-Beatles 
1960s. You know, they, I, I still think they're flexing their creativity. They're not totally just locked in being a Beatles cover band, for lack of a better term, or or Beatles uh, ripoffs. And I think they have good songs. So yeah, I liked it. Well, you know, Tom here. I um, I think these are good songs. I definitely think they're good songs, and I have that sort of same. You know, it's like uh, that uh, that song by uh, the Temptations, "Ball of Confusion," that said, "Like people moving up, people moving in because of the color of the skin." Run, run, run. That's like it epitomizes an era, and I feel like the time of the season, just that beginning, that do no no. Like it's so yeah. like I again you hear that and it's like okay it's it's a short handle for an era. Um, that might be the best version of that thing. They use that in soundtracks all the time, like to establish that you are in the sixties. Yes, and I, yeah. Instead I of agree, being, like, flashing up nineteen sixty two on the bottom of the or like exactly. You know, yeah. Usually it's a bus, one of those kind of humpy, yeah. not straight square buses, <laughs> right? That's driving along a street, and then you hear that the intro to time of the season. <laughs> yes. Um, <laughs> And listen, Time of the Season is a great song. I think there are some great songs on here, but, you know, maybe unfairly, I think of music from the 60s as being a bit more provocative, and the subject matter on this album seemed a little safe for me. Um, I I like the tunes. They're very well-constructed pleasant tunes some of them are a little boring and like i think indulgent maybe um but i was i was hoping for something with a little bit more teeth out of this and maybe that's me just misattributing stuff that came later to this particular era as like sort of like having a real message and like something to say i didn't think that this album had like a ton to say about like the heady times that were the late 1960s. I feel like there was just so much going on in the world. And maybe also it's an American view because there was a lot more stuff going on in America. We had like civil rights in Vietnam and stuff going on in America. But, um, you know, that's, that's been one of my complaints with the Beatles generally is that like, I feel like their song topics are like weird, but not provocative often. And I, I felt that this suffered from that a little bit. I wanted something a little bit, maybe more provocative. Again, that's just me attributing like, in my head, like 1965 to 1970, which is like the craziest five years in history. And like so much stuff was happening. That could be boomer propaganda seeping in. (laughs) (laughs) It happens to all of us. You're saying there's no deeper political meaning to the benefit being for the benefit of Mr. Kite. (laughs) It wasn't about Congolese refugees or something. They're probably complaining about taxes, (laughs) how much money they have to pay to the British crown. Yeah, so this uh, back to Adam here, and so I, I I can definitely get all of your thoughts there. Uh, I'm of the mindset that it's it's a pretty solid pop album. I mean, I I wouldn't put it up there with Rubber Soul or Revolver, but it's kind of close. Um, I think the it's a, the melodies are great, the musicianship's great, the harmonies are great. Rob totally agree that just about every note on this album you can identify by the decade. Uh, it definitely has a 60s vibe. But thinking, uh, looking back at what was charting at the time when this album was released in, in the U.S., we had, uh, so the week of June 15th, uh, 1968 is when it was released. Top of the charts was uh, Mrs. Robinson by Simon and Garfunkel. Uh, 
This Guy's in Love With You by Herb Alpert. I don't know that one. Uh, Moni Moni by Tommy James and the Shondells. Mm. Yummy, yummy, yummy by the Ohio Express. Yummy, yummy, yummy. I got love in my tummy. And I think like it is. You. That's yeah. Whew, well, it that's, wasn't. It, clearly, it was an innocent time then. Talk right, about bubblegum pop. Jesus <laughs> very right. Leg- yes, exactly. Bubblegum pop. Uh, and then the Rascals, uh, a beautiful morning. So you know, it's it's pretty pretty light stuff. Time of so the season seems al- pretty edgy all of a sudden. Right. Yeah. So yeah. this a lot of these tracks feel pretty progressive. There's a couple on there. I, I would even dare to say that they're they're experimental. Um, and so I, yeah. Overall, I uh, I'm digging this one. So. Let's jump into the song. So we've picked a handful of songs here that we want to start uh, taking apart, getting into a bit. And we're going to start with track one off the album, Care of Cell 44. So let's spin that up. All right, so initial impressions. Love this track. Think it's probably the most representative track of what is on the rest of the album and what is good about this. Yes, it's poppy. It's extremely melodic, which I love. The bass is very McCartney-esque. Love the bass tone. And to the point you were just making, I did appreciate that the subject matter is at least a little odd. It's not exactly political, but it's about someone coming home from jail. The juxtaposition of subject matter with sort of musical tone is something I've always looked for in pop music and has and appreciated. So, yes, I, I dug this one and this set the tone for the record for me. Tom, as a bass player, uh, I noticed, and I want to see if you also picked up, on just how bass heavy the mix was. So I, I noticed, because I, I went and I, again, thinking about the charts, what was, what was at the top, I listened to Simon and Garfunkel with some good headphones on, and then I put this tune on, and the bass is really loud, but loud, like, good. Oh, yeah. You know, it's round, it's fat, and it's it's more in front than a lot of kind of the chintzy bubblegum pop stuff that, that you hear. So that was the first thing that I noticed when the bass came in on this song and first listened through. I thought, oh, my God, Tom's going to love this. So, <laughs> like, I, the, this, this song is absolutely fantastic. And I agree with, like, the overall sound of the album is very bass-forward, and it's almost like, um, you know, guitar hadn't really been this sort of, like, solo, shredding, super out-front instrument for... I mean, at the time, it was getting there, but, like, we talk about stuff from, like, the 50s, stuff from the 40s. Like, guitar was, like, a percussive instrument, like, doing, like, background stuff, and so... It was almost like they were like, hey, this is the direction we think that instrumentation in rock and pop music is going. It's going to be this sort of like bouncy bass. And like the bounciness of the bass generally as an instrument lends itself really well to these kind of lilting melodies that they're putting forward. And like there's um, 
a fantastic song by Bell and Sebastian called uh, Get Me Away From Here, I'm Dying, where, like, one of the lines he says in there is, like, nobody writes them like they used to, so it may as well be me. And this song also has, like, this really great lilting melody, and I got that impression listening to this song right away. I was like, you do not hear melodies like this on modern music, and it is beautiful. It has really fantastic movement. Like, that was, like, that was my my number one note is like the movement in this song is so good. It starts out with a melody that gives you a sense of movement. The subject matter of the song itself is like moving on from one period of life to a different period of life. I love, again, this sort of like gender role reversal. Normally it'd be like a woman singing about a man getting home from prison. It's a man singing about a woman getting home. Right. From prison. Yeah. Um, oh, I didn't even think about that. But then they bring in That's, yeah. you know, the bass kind of comes in a little bit of the way through the first verse and that gives it more movement. And then the strings come in at the end of the first verse and that gives it more movement. Like, so as this additive layering continues the sense of movement throughout it. And I felt that that um, really fleshed out the song to me and made it like, you know, some of the songs on the album that my biggest gripe is like from beginning to end, they sound the same. And uh, this one did not sound the same from beginning to end, even though it's not like substantive chord changes. Um, it's a, uh, it's just a really, it's a really well constructed song. I can see why they put it first. I can also see why they might have been. I don't know if they released this as a single, but they might have been disappointed because this. If I was listening to this album, not having known that uh, time of the season is, is the hit, I probably would have released this one as their single. So they did release this in November of 67, which was the first uh, single released off the album. It's okay. a poorly named song. We can say that, though. Yes. It's a very yes. oddly named. I don't know if they're going for a pun on Carousel or something. But, but Tom, you said two things that jumped out to me. One, I'm so glad you drew that line to Bell and Sebastian, because I thought of Bell and Sebastian a lot listening to this record. I think because, one, the zombies are so melodically gifted and have that lilting approach to melody, and that's Bell and Sebastian does that too. Second, because of the nature of the vocalist being kind of light, airy, well, I would argue the zombies' vocalist probably a little bit more talented than Stuart Murdoch. I love Stuart Murdoch, don't get me wrong, but I definitely think you can draw a really straight line to the Bell and Sebastian songs. Second, you mentioned the bass and why the bass is going on. I think this is a nice little piece of extra background on the band i always assume when i hear those mixes that it's about control and power in the band and you have the bass player and a piano player are the principal songwriters and the main power centers of the band and both of those positions care about bass and as opposed to say a guitar player or a drummer you listen to metallica you can hear the drums forward that tells me lars draws a lot of weight in that band right right yeah i assume that's what that's what's going on there so anyway, that's my that's sort of my take on the overall album. Um, uh, and this this song, I think, is um, you know again it, it it came out of the gate, and I I I, I equated it to um, the Lego Movie. You know the song. Everything, Everything is, is awesome. awesome. Yeah. Yes, right. Uh, it doesn't sound like that, but I pictured a happy-go-lucky guy walking down the street, and things are exploding all Skipping, around him. And he doesn't yes. care. And he's like, yeah. Yeah. Woo. yeah. Um, anyway, yeah. Phil, what'd you, th- what'd you think about this? Well, I mean, I think you hit it on the head with a lot of things. Honestly, you guys are talking about the, the content of the song. 
I found the chords and the melody to, and the bass, yeah, and the bass, the counterpoint of the bass to be so pleasant that like I wasn't even really hearing words, right? I was just like, oh, this is fantastic. Yes, uh, yeah, I thought it was wonderful. I I really like the Mellotron, um, which I guess comes in for the second verse and sort of stays in. Definitely creates like a thread to the Beatles. What song is it? A Beatles song? Is it a Kink song? The, like the tack piano at the beginning immediately reminds me of something else, but I couldn't ever quite place it. Uh, it kind of reminded me of Mr. Blue Sky for some reason. That's exactly what I was thinking, <laughs> yeah. Tom. Yeah. Yellow's Mr. Blue Sky. Nice. Yellow's Fantastic. Mr. Blue Sky. Yes. Also very light, airy subject matter. So, Phil, you mentioned mm-hmm. the Mellotron. Is that what I was thinking was strings coming in at the yeah. end of the first yeah, verse sure. of the Mellotron? Okay. So yeah. they couldn't. So the the record company didn't give them very much money. So the story about how they put this album together is that they rehearsed the hell out of these songs before they got into the studio. They get into the studio. They they lay the tracks down pretty pretty quickly, pretty efficiently. They run out of money for an orchestra or strings and, and horn sections, and they wind up just using the Mellotron that John Lennon had left behind from Sergeant Pepper. So tough, <laughs> tough break. And they somehow yeah, broke right. up after this experience of like a super stressful, underfunded recording session. Right. That sounds so <laughs> mystifying to me. So it, one of the things that stuck out to me was how well uh, the, the use of the stereo mix with, a good, again, a good set of headphones um, initially for CBS records, they had mixed this down. I think that the band or some producer said that this had, it had to be mixed down into mono. They took it to CBS records and said, C- uh, CBS says we want it in stereo. So they had to use their own money out of their own pocket to go back to the masters and have it remixed in stereo for us release. I really hope that like they got, more money on the back end because of how much money they had to put in on the front. I don't know. Like, are they just living? So the I, they're probably like, getting screwed because I mean, I'm looking at Spotify right now, and seven of the twelve tracks are the mono versions. Actually, <laughs> do, am I the only one that saw that label on Time of the Season? And I thought I was tripping because I swear it's a stereo mix. Oh There's yeah, a, yeah. I thought it was like the heaviest stereo ever, right? But it says mono on the track. That's just a mislabel. <laughs> That's interesting. I actually didn't listen to Time of the Season. <laughs> I've heard it 135 million times, right. actually. So, Adam, this strikes Spotify. me as like the zombies were like the exact kind of band that your dad liked, right? Yeah, yeah. that's about right. Rob, that's yeah. definitely a stereo mix. All right, You're thank you tripping. for confirming yeah. that I'm not insane. So, <laughs> yeah. yes. right. Rob, I feel like so your parents were probably it. a little bit more on the folky side, but like Adam, your dad yeah. was like late seventies, early late sixties, early seventies. Like this seems like he would have been like intimate all over this, familiar with this entire album, and some of the experimental again that we'll get into some yeah, of the stuff that that I think seeded, yeah, like right, <laughs> seeded some other bands. My mom was listening to the Kingston Trio. On the other hand, so. <laughs> slightly less cool. 
my parents were listening to like um, Pump Boys and Dinettes. We'll put we'll put some of that on the Spotify playlist. No, I don't think we should. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> All right, so that was Care of Cell Forty Four, a first track on the album, coming in strong. Uh, next up, we're going to look at track two, which is uh, called A Rose for Emily. So let's give that a listen. The summer is here at last. The sky is overcast and no one brings a rose for Emily. She watches her flowers grow while lovers come and go to give each other roses from her tree. All right, so that was a rose for Emily. Uh, that's track two. Let me just give you my quick thoughts here. So I first heard this one. I had a couple. I had a couple reactions because I listened to this on our little Google Home speaker the first time I ran through the album, which probably isn't the best thing. But uh, I'm washing dishes. Track one comes on, and I'm like, oh. I'm surprised. This is great. Track two comes on. I look at my wife and said, holy shit, how have I never heard this album? This song just knocked me off my feet. Um, I don't find that surprising. The piano. (laughs) You guys know me pretty well. Um, Part of me thought that it was a, a cheap knockoff of Eleanor Rigby. Like, okay, well, they need an incredibly depressing song that's super beautiful uh, and then I actually found out that it was based off of a, a short story by William Faulkner called A Rose for Emily, which is super depressing. Did they, uh, so they somehow the, cut all of the blatant racism out of that story? Oh. I, I think it's just the title they took, but yeah. Okay. Right, right. I yeah, definitely I thought of Eleanor Rigby, too, though. Okay. I thought of Cried for No One. Uh, just something about the cadence of the piano and, like, the left hand, right hand sort of vibe. Yeah, I mean, it, it, look, it's a fantastic song. Uh, if I wrote this song, I would be very pleased. I would play it for all of you gloatingly because I would know how great it was and I would know that you know how great it is the first time you heard it. Uh, but yeah, but yeah I, I definitely got like really strong Cried for No One vibes and then it has the, the bridge, which is basically just British guys on acid, right? Like, yeah, yeah, what, yeah. is it the bridge? Would you call right. it the bridge? Maybe it's the third verse. Right, it's like a break a breakdown, yeah. maybe something like that. And, I found this song to be pretty boring, honestly. I did like I my note on this is like, can a great melody carry an entire song? No. Um, <laughs> I, I didn't oh, And there it to your point, there is only like one verse and they just keep repeating it yep. like three or four times. So I'll give you it that. Was nice I'll and, give it you was that. tight. Don't get me wrong, it was short. So it didn't like uh it, I didn't find it to be offensive where I was just like, When is this song gonna be over? But um I thought that there were like a, a lack of dynamics in the song, um, and especially after coming off of Care of Cell um, 44, that it, like the lack of dynamics was striking on that. And then the other thing is that this sort of like they have the the two melodies going on, I guess over the chorus part. We'll call that the chorus where they have like the double melodies going on, and like mm-hmm. that works, but not oftentimes when both of them are saying words because I just sort of lost any narrative thread when like there's two different lines of words being spoken and they overlap with each other a lot 
and it just seemed like a little bit of a mess like i would have liked a little bit more spacing in between them to kind of like let each one of them exist on their own and they kind of mashed them up together in a way that i found to be a bit of a jumble um again as phil said this would have been the best song I've ever written in my entire life if I wrote it, but I don't write good songs. <laughs> and so, like, that's not, you know, that's, I, that's I not have, much. Hold on. I, but first, I got to, I hear what you're saying, but I got to dispute, can a great melody carry a song? I, I disagree with you there. I think that's the only thing that can carry a song all the way through. Okay, and well, you maybe mentioned, this isn't a great melody, then. <laughs> I, I thought it was great. I think they're great melody writers, and in that sense, they've carried on with, with what the Beatles have done, but I think they've also made it their own, which is why I liked it, because there's a lot of Beatles pretenders out there, but I think there's a few bands that can say, honestly, hey, I listened to the Beatles, I liked what they were doing, and I want to sing harmony and write pop music, but now I've added my own, I've continued the the legacy in some meaningful way. I think ELO is in that category. Mm-hmm. And and with this album, I think these guys fall in that category. But you mentioned something else I think is really important, especially in light of some of the other records we've listened to, which is the shortness of the songs, which I think is so smart. They're good self-editors. And that is so key to making me want to stick around and want to replay the record. We, we were complaining, I don't know, the last couple weeks about how indulgent people can be, especially the first time they get a little bit of power in the recording studio. And what I heard about this was, this was the this was their last hurrah record where it was underfunded, but they had a chance to, for the first time ever, be in the mixing sessions and actually help produce the record and have some say in it. So the fact that they were, and then they were just excited to do that, right, at a place like Abbey Road and have a go at it, even though they were sort of falling apart as a band, so the fact all that put together and they're still able to edit themselves and not be overly indulgent and not stretch an idea out like this into a four-minute song. Instead, it's a two-minute, ten-second song. Uh, to me, I give them a ton of credit for that. Self-editing. That is a fair point. If this was a four-minute song, I would have like very much disliked it. Um, I, I'm just sort of like on the negative side of ambivalent about it because it's sort of like, I, I just don't, it doesn't have a lot to offer to me besides the melody and like I, the melody is good. <laughs> besides it's all around beauty. <laughs> yeah. I'll, yeah. I mean, it's a beautiful melody, but like, again, by the end of the song, I was wanting more dynamics. I was wanting more. I don't like nice things. You know, something, something that this conversation is sort of like made me think about, and thinking about the timing of this in relation to Abbey Road and sort of where this was in the sort of Beatles lineage, you can actually see this as like a precursor to a song like Because. You could see how like, you know, Paul would have heard this and thought like, oh yeah, I can definitely do that better. You see there's nothing you can do. There's loving Like if there was a beautiful harmonies that were coming in on top of the main melody and it wasn't like I just felt like the the sort of the melody counter melody over the course were like they were like fighting with each other almost. I didn't think that they gelled very well. And I would have rather that effort be put into uh, augmenting the main line as opposed to, you know, playing against the main line. Well, here's here's another thought. On, Adam alluded to it, right, with the underfundedness of this record, but I get the impression everything I hear and hear them talk about, maybe they're being humble, is that these songs were kind of thrown together. They were often written very shortly before they showed up at the studio, you know, maybe slightly rehearsed, but 
not produced. Like even they even said time of the season. They recorded it with the drums and bass throughout the song. They didn't re- rehearse it with the Oz. You know, they added that at the end, and they had minimal time at the end for overdubs, and they were just really going on the fly. So to, I, that added a layer to me of of impressiveness that I knew they were kind of throwing these things together, especially on an overdub level, bringing in stuff definitely from the Beatles, but also definitely hearing the Beach Boys' Pet Sounds, right, which I, I think yeah, will come out totally. shortly before this, and bringing some of that in. You know, press for time, just, just producing on the fly. I like that. Yeah, and I think from a, a production standpoint, too, there, there's no producer listed on this album. It's It says the zombies, right? So, Rob, to your point, they had a lot of input. They had a lot of... Uh, they were they were probably calling the shots, and then you've got these super pros who are running the board from uh, probably why they uh, fought. Sergeant Pepper. Probably why they fought too. Yeah. We yeah. keep saying they, right? But like, how much control does Argent have here versus White versus Bluntstone? Bluntstone. First of all, can we just say that Rod Argent has a great rock and roll name? Oh, he's he's. Oh, I, totally. I, I'm pretty sure he is yeah. actually what I love about the zombies, and I'm gonna yeah. go and get I, into the I, Argent catalog now. Yeah, and there's a couple. There's a decent Argent record or two out there that I've listened to. Yeah, they're pretty fun. Can we also say that Hugh Grundy does not have a very good rock and roll that's name? A, that's a terrible. <laughs> that's a bad rock. <laughs> terrible <laughs> rock and roll name. Oh, poor. It's not good for any poor Hugh Grundy. <laughs> I, you know, actually, I wanted to say, too, that the drum production overall, to me, is really lacking on this. They sound very totally. tinny. It hasn't aged very well, like, as opposed to the bass and even the vocal. I guess the vocal treatment, you could say, is really stuck in the decade. The bass still feels round and cool and bouncing. Yeah, the drums, and it's not a, you know, I would like to say they hadn't figured out how to record drums yet or something, but... The Beatles drums, by comparison, I think are much better. Yeah, yeah. That's, that's actually they had the mic call. still set up in Abbey Road. Yeah, they could have just exactly. slid their right, drum seriously. set in there and just, give me the Ringo sound. So we got the same t-shirt laying on the snare, you know? Like, <laughs> and with a lot of the bass, it really is like, they were like, what do you want it to sound like? And they were like, uh, rain, you know, rain. Can you just make it sound like rain? Right. And they're like, yeah, or like tomorrow never knows. Just give me that. Style that in, like, can do. Style that in for me. (laughs) One one thing that I will say, which is probably a good segue into the next song, but, like, it is definitely a sign of the proficiency of bands of the era that you have five members in the band, and all five of them are listed as having vocals on the album. They all sing at some point on the album, and that is not an easy task to have five good voices in one band that can also play their instruments well. So kudos to them for really being like craftsmen in that, in that regard. Cool. All right. So let's roll into changes, which uh, I, I had a note in, in addition to being the <laughs> second least popular song uh, just in terms of Spotify hits, what I feel is probably the most experimental on the album. So let's, let's give that a listen. <gasps> Peppermint coat, button-down clothes, buttoned up high, diamonds and stones hang from her hand. Isn't she smart? Isn't she grand? All right, so a a pretty big divergence from that bubblegum pop sound of the '60s. What do you guys think? 
This this made me think immediately of of the uh, Panda Bear record, Person Pitch. Adam, are you familiar with this record? I am not. So, but I gotta go yeah, listen so, if it's uh, anything like this tune. <laughs> Uh, this particularly reminded me, I think, of the, the second song on there. I think it might be called, like, Bros. But, yeah, in retrospect, this actually linked the, the zombies to Animal Collective and, and this, like, way more modern thing. Um, I didn't particularly like this song. Uh, <laughs> I found it to be, like, a little weird and Gregorian chanty. But it, it connected a lot of dots to more modern zombies influences um, for me. This could be where the Baroque pop thing. Mm, sure. Right? Yeah, for sure. This embodies that that label that people are throwing on the album of Baroque pop. This felt like the experiment that kind of worked for me. I mean, it, it was definitely odd. And it. I like when an album gets broken up and isn't 100% the same. And I think this song kind of has a pair that we're going to talk about as well that, that helped the album not feel too samey. I feel like if you look at the writing credits, this is, you know, this is a Chris White song, Butcher's Tale, the other... The sister song of this, I think, Mm -hmm. is a Chris White song, uh, the bass player. And Rod Argent, and he writes a few other songs too, but Argent kind of writes some of the other, he wrote Time of the Season and Care of Cell 44. So I think maybe you have a little bit of that McCartney-Lennon thing where one guy's doing the airy, lilting stuff and one guy's kind of doing the minor key, intense stuff. Rockers. So Yeah, I, I thought it was experimental and worked pretty well if it was a little weird, but it felt a little ahead of its time for that reason. I had a few like structural problems with this song. And um, Adam, you've mentioned this before, the wall of sound style, you start at a hundred. Where do you go from there? Right. And they came in with the big, I knew her big harmony. All right. And like, that is the, that is the most intense part of the song. And they give it to you right off the bat. And then they do that exact same part again and again and again. And so there's like the way the song is structured is like a big part and then it strips down and then there's like a strip down part. And that strip down part works because of the contrast. It works because it's stripped Mm -hmm. down. And then they try to do the build of the song by adding to the stripped down part. And I would have mm. much rather had them add to the big part and make the big part be 30% less big at the beginning and end yeah, on that okay. huge right, note at right. the end as opposed to coming in moment one on the huge note. And then, like, it didn't give the song a peak, you know, because they try to do that, like, sort of, like, uh, syncopated piano style with, um, uh, you know, in that stripped down part. I think it's, like, the third time they go through it, they're sort of, like, a doom 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 Dun, 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 on the chords, and that made that more of a mess to me. When I turned it up in my headphones, they've got uh, a really heavy delay where once you get past a certain volume, it's completely distracting. It's so delayed that it uh, it almost sounds like it's offbeat. So that kind of like threw things off for me a little bit. But I also did make a note that this song, I feel like Gentle Giant heard this song and said, let's make an entire band <laughs> dedicated to this sound, thank, this song. Thank God they these did. These weird, right? <laughs> 
and it was called Octopus, <laughs> which is a great album. Well, I, think you, I, um, I have that one. It's like a jar, right? And it's actually oh, yeah. like an. Uh, yeah, it's like not a square, a, right? It's like but a like die everything about record yeah. sleeve. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> got that in a dollar bin. Well, you mentioned how they how they try to build and go from a hundred. I mean, it's it's a good point, Tom, that they they started a hundred and where do they go from there? One of the things I thought was interesting about the instrumentation, and it comes up a couple other times on the record, is they didn't resort to using the band for that build. I mean, they kind of have like bongos or some really light drums. They obviously have piano because piano's on every song, but right. they don't use guitar. They don't really use the drummer or the bass player. There's a lot of not band instrumentation on this, and there's a few other songs like that too. And again, maybe that's why they're arguing in the studio because <laughs> the songwriter's like, no, you shouldn't play. Shut up, you know? Yeah. I would say my only other criticism of this song, and it might be one of those like sort of retrospective criticisms that at the time would not even have been valid, but like the lyrics seemed a little like stock psychedelic, where it's just like, you know, it seemed like they were like, what's some weird way that we can describe clothing? Let's call it like a, you know, strawberry coat or whatever the hell, you know, like they had to throw in peppermint something, right? Yeah. Very psychedelic. But maybe that was like started that maybe they were the first people that did that um it's possible but like it upon hearing it i was definitely like oh these are like nonsensical for the sake of being nonsensical but i will also say again if we're talking about a low point for an album for me like it's still a pretty high watermark for a low point like i didn't hate this song i think in comparison Mm -hmm. to many of the other good songs of the album this song was my low point but if this was like if this was on a lot of other albums, I'd be like, this is one of the better songs in the album. This is pretty good. You know, it's it's interesting because I, I, I don't particularly love this one or Butcher's Tale. Um, but, that, you know, they are sort of like companion pieces, right? And it makes me wonder, like, whose songs do I actually like more? Like, at a glance, I, I think I prefer the Argent songs. Um, but if I take these two out, I have to reconsider that, especially as we come up on this next ten. Ah, thank you. That is a fantastic Segway, Phil. So next up is This Will Be Our Year, uh, coming in at <laughs> two minutes and five seconds, uh, which is actually the shortest song on the album. So let's give that a quick listen. The of your like the from the sun, and this will be I wrote down pure pop for pure pop perfection. Yeah, this is an ace. <laughs> what are, this is the deep cut. This song should have been a bigger hit. Yes. Oh, it still totally. sounds modern to me, especially yes. melodically. Yes. Which is amazing, given that it's five decades old or whatever, six decades old, whatever it is. And yeah, this is the one to add to your mixtape immediately. You they, know, play it at your wedding, whatever you're gonna do. The way that the way they use <laughs> it's totally the way a wedding they song. Use, yes, uh, mono double to build like energy in the song, right? 
It's yeah, it's it's got all the tricks, right? I, um, <laughs> of the era yeah. used perfectly. My note was definitely like this sounds like a modern song. This could, if this was like again, this is like a Jason Mraz song or I guess Jason Mraz is even modern these days, it's probably like twenty <laughs> years ago, but like um <laughs> but like Sean Mendez. Sure, great. <laughs> but uh, it sounds like if you said that this was the new song from some popular like Ed Shireen or whatever I'd be like, oh, this is a great song. This sounds really modern. And we've I know we've talked about this before. It's one of my favorite things is the super tasteful, almost not noticeable half-step key change yeah, yeah. that they do. I was just going to say that's that is the one thing that they just wouldn't do today. I feel like this peaked with like I don't want to say peaked, but I feel like Whitney Houston blew this out. Right? Like Whitney Houston used to do this and people just stopped doing it after her. <laughs> one of the reasons it's tasteful, yeah, it's because it's nicely planned within the context of the music. Another reason it's tasteful is because it's not just put there to extend the song needlessly. Again, we're at a, we have like a 2 minutes and change song here. They get in, they get out. Yeah. They do what they want to do. Well, they do one verse, one chorus, and then they do it. Like, it's not like, again, it's not that they're going like, oh, we're going to super chorus it where we do a half-step key change on the super chorus. It's like, you know, like, let's just talk about the chords in this song. And they're simple chords, but they're so beautiful. A to a C-sharp minor, back to an A7 to a D. So you sort of, you do the A to the C-sharp minor, and then you come back to the A7, so that chord's a little different. And then you go you know, just a half step above the C-sharp minor to a D major, like, that's so great. And then, like, that that F to the E7 for the, and this will be our year. That's a, that is beautiful. It, like, I really, I really dug that. I This is one of those songs that immediately upon hearing it, I was like, I have to learn how to play this song. Like, this yes. is so fulfilling to be able to play and sing. And I know I keep talking about the ukulele, but, like, this is this is one of those songs that's just, like, it's like made to just be able to play on the ukulele effortlessly and it sounds beautiful it's really super fun the first so i i had a modern song come into my head when i first heard this and it's it's one of my favorite songs um do you guys remember that band fastball from oh yes that song was it out of my head was it out of my mind how could like that is it's it's perfect that's the fastball piano driven the way no, no. <laughs> Listen, no. That I support you, Adam. That fastball record was good. There was some really good pop on there, and that was another yeah. example of a band where they got famous on one. I like the way, just fine, but they had a lot of nice piano pop, like the song you just mentioned. There was a couple other tunes I remember from that one. Yeah. yeah. So this, yeah, I mean, it's again th- this this song right spun up that whole band kind of like totally. <laughs> changes spun up some experimental stuff. Yeah, but just just as a last note, my favorite song of the album. Yeah. Far and away, including time of the season, it was like, and I, I loved Carousel 44. Like, the first time I heard it, I was like, this is the high point of the album. And then I heard this song, and I was like, And then you this got is to this, right? Yeah, this is man. the one that I really dig. I generally prefer the Argent songs over the White songs. This, I do think, is the best song on the record. It just is... Like you said, Rob, like this is the one to put on your mixtape right away. Yeah. <laughs> right? Like, Hell yeah. But, uh, yeah. you know, we've talked 
a lot about track ordering. You couldn't have led with this. It make like I like where mm-hmm. it is in the order of the album. Makes sense. Yeah, you're right. It's like that final booster rocket to like get you into you know Earth's atmosphere. Well, it's like you have to be primed for a song like this by some of the other songs. You're right. If this came out as song number one, you'd be like. There's not a whole lot going on here. Like, you know, why didn't you extend this? This song's really short. There's not a lot of changes. But, like, you get the, you know, Care of Self 44 with just, like, beautiful movement, layering. You get the more experimental tracks. And then you get this stripped-down track. And it's like, oh, you're reminding me of, like, why I love the core of your sound, which is, like, you know, you take away all the other affectations on it. And it's just, like, the core of the sound is really good. You know, you know what's a fun thing about this song too? Uh, you know, it's it's sort of like a bass, drum, piano, trio, vocal, right? And then there's a overdubbed piano solo, right? It's very clearly an overdubbed <laughs> oh, piano yeah, solo. Right. There's just something charming about it, you know. You know, there's something like the piano sort of grinding against the rhythm piano in a way that just you would never play piano like that right it's just clearly an overdubbed <laughs> piano in the midst yeah, of assault yeah it's great though right, it's fantastic right. it's fantastic right all right so to to go from what what i consider the the high point of of the album to what i think is the low point of the album uh let's spin up our next track here which is butcher's tale So nothing screams 60s pop like a pump organ. <laughs> or what's the harmonina, aquafina? What's the name of the instrument? Well, uh, the harmonium. Zombafina. Harmonium. <laughs> well, like, my, my is question. Close. They should have named it a zombonium. Will the British ever get over World War One? How many freaking <laughs> British songs do I need to hear about World War I? Oh I get it. It sucked. But, like, there was, like, a lot of other stuff that happened since World War One that was equally, if not more, traumatic. How about maybe World War Two that happened to kill nope. way more people? No. Nope. Vietnam? No. Nope. No. Nope. The Brits nope, were killing this. people constantly. There's always wars going on in the British Empire. How is this World War One the thing they always go back to? Two very British things going on here, referencing the Battle of the Somme and Canterbury Tales. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, absolutely. I, Rob, I, I like my, uh, you know, my very prestigious English degree from the University of Delaware aside, I did not make the connection to the Canterbury Tales until you just made that right there. So clearly I did not pay enough attention in class when I was learning about that stuff. This was not a low point for me. I, I dispute that. I liked, okay. I really, I think what the salt or the the thing in the dish, let's say, that brought it all together for me, like the salt brings out the flavor perhaps, was these experimental tracks, which admittedly I, I don't think are the best tracks or the best written songs, but I they added enough layer of variety to make me appreciate the sort of the dynamics of the album. And here's another comment on us is that I think you can tell when we like something 
when even when we're complaining about it, we're drawing these lines to other bands that we that we like, or at least we can see these connections. As opposed to last week with the Bee Gees, we were basically just saying they were a Beatles ripoff, which at best, right? Anyway, I think this is very Decemberous. I don't know if you guys ever listened to that band. Yeah. It took a long time for this style of music to come back into fashion. Flash forward to the early 2000s Portland. I think it's partly this guy's voice is the only one the bass player sings, according to Wikipedia. He's got a right. weird, like... But, yeah, if you listen to some of those Decemberist songs, like The Engine Driver, you'll get a very... And he's also a very literary songwriter. Okay. See, I, I feel like I knew nothing about the Decemberists, but as soon as you said that, I was picturing a bunch of guys with, like pocket watches and like weird top hats <laughs> like yeah. is that it's is that li- relatively accurate <laughs> it's a little bit like that but they're okay. they're good he's a good uh, i think colin malloy is a good songwriter for sure right. riding a penny farthing yeah. or is that what it's called yes. down the street <laughs> um he's he's overly literary for sure at, at times but uh worth listening to one thing i noticed on this song is that there was an extraordinary amount of like key noise on the recording, like I could totally. hear them hitting the keys, the click, yes, and even the air, like whoosh, moving over, like of the of the pump organ. Yeah, it was a yeah, it was. Um, I just made a note that this was a ballsy tune. So it, so I guess like I when I originally heard it, I was like, oh, that's super interesting. I wonder if they recorded the singer live while he was playing the organ because that would explain getting all that key noise from the organ but no they did not do that um, because uh chris white sang lead vocals on butcher's tail and i'm sure argent played uh played the organ on that um so that I, I, maybe it, it chris it. white pumped the organ <laughs> While he tracked, he was running in place well, on the two pedals. That would make me uh, forgive his kind of pitchiness in his the uh, when he yeah. gets to the won't stop shaking lines. Like he kind of can't hit them consistently. Not that that's a deal breaker in this particular context, but like I couldn't help but notice it. So my, there's a couple 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 other notes on on this song which I I think are 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 good. Uh, first off, they credited. A song from from 1967 with their inspiration for this. Can you guess what it was? If I was to maybe give you a hint of last week's podcast, they credited uh, what was it? New York. Oh, mining the mining disaster. disaster of- the New York yeah. mining disaster of 1941 <laughs> was the inspiration for for the tone of this Man, song. The Bee Gees were doing more harm than good. <laughs> so they. <laughs> By the way, I just I just clicked onto the Wikipedia article for Butcher's Tale, and it says that it's been covered by They Might Be Giants. Really? I saw that, that as well. That oddly makes yeah. sense. That does actually it does. make a good amount of sense. Yeah, they like, <laughs> they like accordions, so, you know, yeah. it's a connection so there. The most confusing thing, so of the three songs, uh, singles that, uh, I guess it was a subsidiary of CBS, released in the U.S., they released this song. Yeah. As a single. This is the second single, Before Time of the Season. This is the second right. single. Right. With uh, This Will Be Our yeah. Year on the B-side. Right. <laughs> it's so confusing. So they, the thought was that this was going to be somewhat edgy because it was a veiled reference to Vietnam. Um, but obviously, on American Bandstand, Dick Clark was not spinning this so the kids would dance. <laughs> <laughs> 
it's not danceable for sure. No, it's not danceable at all. I I just Man. appreciate I appreciate the stretch. I appreciate the stretch. Yeah, la- we've listened I, I to these that. records that are just so ho hum and safe throughout the entire thing, and I like it when bands take chances. I do think this is a bit of a failed experiment as well. Right. But I do I do appreciate it. But that was that was honestly that was my biggest critique about this is that like. I don't see talking about World War One as taking a chance, because like, you know, again, it happened so long ago. You could have talked about the freaking Holocaust. You could have talked about, you know, like anything for World War Two. You could be talking about the war in Vietnam. You could have been talking about so many other things. And you go back to World War One, which is so far in the past that it's like it's that whole thing where they talk about like they'll make games about world. They'll make like video games about World War Two. Because those people are like dying off and not playing video games, but they don't make Vietnam video games because like people who are in Vietnam are still around, and like they're like, oh, we don't want to do it. You don't want to like actually get too real with it because then that's gonna freak people out. And like that, it it had that feeling to me. Like we can't get too real because those people might actually listen to the song and like have something real to say about it. But I object to the idea that you have that edginess is the only way to take chances. I mean, I, I get what you're saying about the lyrical content. It's definitely light. But that's not the only way. Like, I am putting this all under the heading of this is a record for them, by them. It was, I got the impression from their interviews that it was almost like, hey, man, the band's kind of breaking up. This has been fun, but it hasn't quite worked. Let's throw one more album at it where we get a chance to make the songs we want to make and produce how we want to produce just to kind of close it out almost, you know? And in that context, I think... I like that they're just making creative choices of what they want. I I don't people can be weird about the creative choices they make. I don't think it has to be edgy to be cool. In fact, I think there's a just a I just really feel passionately against this edginess is coolness uh equation that you somewhat alluded to there. I just don't agree with that. I am I think that my biggest qualm with it is that it's almost like it's like a watered down version of edginess. Like if this was a song about a breakup or something like that, and they made the same choices in terms of instrumentation and tone, I would have liked it a lot more. But it's like it's almost like, you know, there very clearly had to have been the conversation about like, well, like why World War One? Why not something more relevant? And they went to the, they took so it's almost like they were edgy, but they took the safe choice. And that's the thing that annoys me the most is like you, you sort of were kind of trying to go for something that was like a big swing, but then you chickened out at the last second. But at least they're talking about the thing they're talking about. We criticize the Bee Gees for making a Trafalgar song that doesn't even reference really a battle in any oh, meaningful right. way. These are not in the same universe. If this was on Trafalgar, it been the best song on Trafalgar. By a landslide. <laughs> All right. By a landslide. Uh, uh, okay. Let me get back to you on that next one. <laughs> <laughs> you prefer how how can you mend a broken heart? Some sad sack bastard music. Yeah, the problem with all the songs on Trafalgar is they're all too long. You know, for some of these songs of... were maybe too short. Like I could have used twenty seconds more on a few of these songs, but yeah, overall. Uh, yeah. I mean, I could have taken like a trumpet solo on "This Will Be Our Year." You know, oh. you could have given me anything. In there, That's you know? a great production note. That would have been that would actually been pretty dope. It's like a quick little <laughs> trumpet solo in the back. Well, now of the we're of course. Now we're way into Bell and Sebastian territory <laughs> here, but <laughs> I like Bell What's and missing? I like him too, but hey, you know, you had to leave some room for them to have a band idea. That's a fair point. All right, so that was A Butcher's Tale, which was labeled by the band as the most so- soberly uncommercial song they've released. 
So we're going to end our deep dive. (laughs) We're going to end our deep dive there. All right, and now comes the time in the podcast where we work our way around the room here and see whether or not you think this deserves to be in the 1001 albums you have to hear before you die. Let's throw it over to Phil first. Phil. I'm, I'm going to say yes on this one. I really enjoyed this record. I liked it. Uh, it, it. It felt like a breath of fresh air. It definitely also felt like, where where has this been all of my life? Um, obviously, I was familiar with time of the season. I also felt like I was familiar with Beechwood Park uh, for some reason, but I thought it was fantastic. I did think the side two of, you know, what would be the, the EP felt a little soft, although it also had my favorite song. Uh, and I would actually say of all the records we've listened to thus far, this is the first one that I'll like, I'll probably seek out the vinyl and I feel like some of these songs will grow on me even more as I, you know, take it in. So yes. Yeah. It's a yes for me as well. Similar to what Phil said. I think you can't understand pop music unless you have a healthy diet of see what people have done with this genre and this is a great and I think fairly consistent take on 60s pop. Personally, hadn't heard the record before, and yet yeah, gave me that feeling. You want every record, every new record to give you that you rarely get, frankly, which is, where has this been all my life? So I'm excited to play it again. This is only really maybe the second time this has happened on the podcast or something truly new that I feel is, is going to be my regular rotation is going to be, uh, was introduced to me here. So bravo. Please listen to the zombies. Yeah, I, I thought this album was great. I mean, I picked a lot of nits over the course of it, but like what we're really talking about is, you know, like digging around the edges of a fantastic piece of art. Um, I think that you need to hear this before you die because it gives you another very solid reference point besides the Beatles for this era of music and this particular type of music from this era. And like even we do, we're 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 guilty of just sort of referencing everything back to the Beatles. This gives you another reference point for a stem of music, that creativity that came from that. And, you know, the fact that uh, they were completely inadvertently responsible for the creation of the ZZ Top just lifts it above and, <laughs> and uh, gives it a 100% double thumbs up from me. I think we've assigned ZZ Top, Fastball, Bell and Sebastian. Right, there's, yeah, they have a long lineage here. Absolutely. <laughs> So they, I I agree with everything that that you guys said. Uh, my my one note was that a lot at, as we've been doing this podcast, we'll listen to a specific album, and honestly, over the course of the week, I might listen to it between, you know, four to eight to ten times, right, to to really get the songs into my head. And then usually we'll record this podcast, and then I'm kind of done with it, and it's nice to kind of you know get a break from listening to whatever album we were listening to. So far, this is the only album where I probably plan on listening this uh, to this tomorrow. It was just a, a solid, um, straight through. Again, some some weaker songs, but not bad songs. Uh, I'm giving this one a thumbs up, which means we have a unanimous thumbs up. Congratulations, Zombies, Odyssey, and Oracle. Even with the misspelling of Odyssey, <laughs> you guys Man, are on the cut. list. Yes. <laughs> nice job. Well done. So, we're going to throw things over to Tom, who is our uh, the owner of our Albinator 5000, which will give us a uh, well, give us next week's album that we got to 
jump into? Um, I am very eager for yet another Baroque pop offering for next week. So <laughs> let's see what is in the works. Is Renaissance coming up? Uh, it's probably right. the Pentangle or something like that. So um, <laughs> you guys can look that one up. It's terrible. Um, uh, let's uh, let's give it a spin. Let's see what we have available for next week. So. Drum roll, please. We will be listening to, examining, and breaking down. Oh, synchronicity by the police. Oh, nice. nice. Yet another That's one weird. I imagine everyone's cool. pretty familiar with as a bass player. I am very into this album, even though I don't think that Sting is uh, a guy who's like a showy bass player. He is the guy who is just like the perfect pocket bass player. And, uh, can never have any complaints about Stuart Copeland on the drums either. And another contentious band situation. We get to talk about people that hate each other. Sounds awesome. <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. Yes. I think I already know what the low point on this one is, but we'll save it for next week. There might be some debate about that, but we'll see. We'll see. I'm gonna gu- I'm gonna guess I know what Rob's already got. Is it's early. It's an early. It's an early low. <laughs> <laughs> it's pretty low. Pretty, pretty low. All right. So dial it up, Spotify, Apple Music, whatever you need to do. Go out and find the police's synchronicity. Give it a listen before next week. And let us know what you think about the podcast. Do you love us? Do you hate us? We've got an email address and you can send us some hate mail. It's 1001albumcomplaints at gmail.com. You can also send us praise. We, we appreciate that as well. And if you're relatively, what's the word I'm looking for? Coherent. We might even read your, read your email on an upcoming Coherence podcast. Coherence has no place in this podcast, Adam. Come on. Right. <laughs> Obviously from listening to us, you know, that, that really doesn't, doesn't make a whole hell of a lot of difference. So. All right, that's it. We're going to wrap it up here. 1001 Album Complaints. I am Adam. Phil. I'm Rob. And I am Tom. We'll talk to you next week. Boosh.